Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the book, How to Read Literature Like a Professor, by Thomas C. Foster, he makes the argument that in literature, sex is never actually about sex. It's always about something else in the story. And the reverse is also true, he argues. Everything else in a story is about sex. That's probably a little bit reductionistic, but I think it's helpful for our epistle reading today, which has a lot to do with the issue of sex. But the topic that Paul addresses in the reading is sexual ethics, but I would argue the reading itself is not necessarily about sex. Now, being in a culture that promotes individualism, we're told implicitly and explicitly that selfishness is good. We might remember how in the movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko gives the infamous monologue about how greed is good. Sex is one of those areas where this mentality has become increasingly prominent, especially since the sexual revolution. Hookup culture has caused many to see their sexual partners as merely means to the end of self-gratification. Birth control as a pervasive technology has contributed to this mentality by severing the natural connection between sex and reproduction. And the abortion industrial complex has led us culturally to sacrifice invaluable human life on the altar of convenience and contributed to a culture of disposability in the pursuit of action without consequences. Today in our epistle reading, St. Paul uses the issue of sexual ethics to point us to the larger process of sanctification, which is our cooperation with grace to become conformed to the image of Christ, where our baptismal vows are lived out, where we grow into who we are supposed to be. Or as St. Paul says in the reading this morning, it's about how to live and to please God. And so to explain that larger process, the issue of sexuality is his springboard. Now, Paul opens the, the reading this morning with both a commendation and an exhortation to the Thessalonian community. And it's a stark contrast to what he writes to the Corinthian community in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, who are in constant need of rebuke and chastisement. He exhorts the Thessalonians, in effect, to keep doing what they were doing, which was walking and pleasing God, to continue in that process of sanctification. Sanctification, becoming holy, expresses itself in two ways in the reading. There's a positive sense in which it means living in holiness and honor, and there's a negative sense in which it means avoiding the passion of lust. While sanctification is a process in each Christian person, each of us undergoes this sometimes painful process of sanctification, it is not purely an individual phenomenon. This is particularly true on the topic of sexuality, which is, by definition, an act that has communal ramifications. You can think about how transgressing in this area wrongs many people. An affair, for example, wrongs both the spouses and children of both partners involved. Sexual activity outside of marriage also risks negatively impacting the other person in the relationship because of objectification. Further, we can say that sexual immorality hurts the self. So the alternative given to us by St. Paul is to live in holiness and in honor, 
To live in holiness is to live as one set apart. It's to live knowing that we are to emulate our Lord. To live honorably is to act in ways that are fitting to one's vocation, in ways that are appropriate. Both living in holiness and acting honorably require self-control of the body, which points us to the larger goal or underlying principle of the passage. God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. And there is a consequence to this, St. Paul argues, because disobedience in this area isn't just directed at others, but primarily it's directed at God. So the first point in the reading is that behavior that is opposed to peace is not directed towards God. I think St. Paul would agree that the human body is good and it's beautiful, but it's also a tool, and a tool can be used for both good and bad purposes. Because the body was created by God, it should be used for good. It should be used to serve him. But according to scholar Jerome Murphy O'Connor, sexual immorality is self-centered existence, which disregards the rights of the creator or of others, or which uses others as instruments for its own gratification. Sexual immorality, insofar as it's based on lust and includes unfitting behaviors outside of God's design, by definition, disrupts peace. It disrupts the peace of a community. You can think about all of those megachurch pastors who have sent their churches into tailspins because of affairs that have become public. And it also disrupts one's own internal peace because it's a sin not only against others but against God, disrupting that relationship and harmony that should exist between creature and creator. Sexual immorality is not, however, the only kind of sin that disrupts God's design for human flourishing. In fact, all of our sin is really a replication of that first sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden. What made that sin a sin? It wasn't an act of eating fruit in general that was sinful. After all, the Garden of Eden contained many trees and many fruit. The sin was in the first couple doing what God forbade them from doing. Sin was in wanting to be like God, and that the primal man and woman wanted to be masters of their own fates and to play by their own rules. So the specific topic that Paul addresses for us this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4 is sexual sin, and there's certainly plenty of that to go around. There always has been. But his exhortation to walk in honor and in holiness, to avoid selfish indulgence of the passions in ways that don't please God, leads to a more general reminder for us in all areas of our life, including but not limited to sex. It's a reminder that above all other concerns and in all circumstances, our main concern should be to walk in a way that pleases God. Scholar Michael Gorman, in discussing this passage from this morning's reading, reminds us that the church is not called merely to believe the gospel, but also to become the gospel and thereby to advance the gospel. He says that the church is a living exegesis of the gospel. Jesus became human and died for us. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But he often doesn't leave us the way that he found us. Pick up your mat and walk, he tells the lame man. 
pick up your cross and follow me. These are invitations to imitate him, to become like him. And that's what sanctification is. By the grace of the Holy Ghost, we answer the call of our Lord. And as we become more like him, what we'll find is that we begin to face outward so that we treat others as if he was present in them. And we invite others to come and heed that same call to follow him. Now, the season of Lent is not a season for us to give up sin, at least not uniquely so. All time is time for us to give up sin. Sometimes you hear people at the beginning of Lent, well, I'm going to give up binge-watching Netflix. Well, maybe you should give that up already. (laughs) All times are times we should be trying to discipline ourselves in in that area. But Lent is a special time for us. It's a 40-day period that's set aside for us to fast, where we give up good things— as a way to recognize our dependence on God and to focus more intently on him. In other words, Lent is about increasing in holiness. In the baptismal rite, we pray that the person or child who is being baptized will manfully fight under the banner of Christ against sin, the world, and the devil, and to continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant unto his life's end. Lenten disciplines of fasting, prayer, and almsgiving are means by which we continue that baptismal charge. They're the means by which, at least during this season, that we fight manfully because they help inculcate in us that self-control that we need in order to live in a holy and honorable way while conquering our disordered passions. We beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and please God, so ye would abound more and more. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.